Welcome to Snack Break. We speak to experts mostly about policy, but also about snacks. Over the course of his presidency, Donald Trump has had a complicated, even adversarial relationship with his own intelligence community. Even before he took office, just nine days before his inauguration, he compared intelligence agencies to Nazis. He has called their leaders political hacks and seems to believe Vladimir Putin's personal assurances that he didn't meddle with the 2016 U.S. election over consensus in the intel community that he did. This is Snack Break. I'm Maru Mukherjee. And here to discuss national intelligence, the Trump administration, and foreign policy is General Jim Clapper, who served as the Director of National Intelligence from 2010 to 2017. Jim, thank you so much for joining. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So can we start out with, with the intelligence community? What, what is the intelligence community? How does it work, and, and, and what does it provide the president? Well, as now constituted, as a result of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, intelligence community is composed of uh, 17 components, not agencies. That's an important distinction. What is the distinction between those two? Well, agencies, there are now, uh, well, five agencies whose full-time mission is intelligence. So the four intelligence agencies that reside in the Department of Defense, plus the Central Intelligence Agency, whose full-time mission is intelligence. FBI uh, is a unique status uh, in that it straddles both intelligence and law enforcement. The other parts of the intelligence community are components that support a larger department. So for example, each of the services have, military services have their own intelligence arm. And Department of Homeland Security, Department of Treasury, Department of Energy, uh, all each have uh, their own intelligence component. So there is a distinction between an agency and a staff component that is supporting a larger department. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's now constituted that it was uh, governed by the provisions of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, which was signed into law on the 17th of December 2004 by President Bush. And the creation of the position of Director of National Intelligence stemmed from a recommendation made by the uh, 9-11 Commission, which uh, concluded that there needed to be a full-time coordinator integrator uh, of the intelligence community, not uh, someone doing it as kind of a, a second hat. And was the problem was that there were too many arms, not all talking to, the, well, to each other? Well, uh, to me, the bigger problem, having observed up the prior arrangement, I should explain, was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency had a second hat as the director of Central Intelligence, and that was the arrangement that prevailed, that evolved over, uh, over time since the National Security Act was enacted in 1947. Uh, my observation uh, of watching uh, DCIs, directors of central intelligence, always dual-hatted as the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and having watched up close and personal about 20 years' worth of them, that sooner or later, mostly sooner, they got consumed with agency-centric issues. Having done, uh, served as a director of two of these agencies for almost nine years, I can tell you that they are in, the, in and of themselves, seven by 24, all-consuming jobs. So the conclusion was of the 9-11 Commission, there needed to be a full-time leader, coordinator of the entirety of the intelligence community. So that's the origin of it as it's now uh, constituted. And the, the, three, the three basic functions are, first and foremost, to serve as the uh, primary intelligence, uh, security, and counterintelligence advisor to the president. I said primary, not exclusive, since the president typically, at least in my experience, did get inputs from other people. 
Secondarily, to st specifically, which is a very important function for the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, is to manage what's called the NIP, the National Intelligence Program, which is the programmatic aggregation that funds the national intelligence community. And thirdly, to essentially lead the enterprise. And those are the three essential duties. And as a consequence, particularly with respect to intelligence support to policymaker number one, uh, the president uh, is that the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, presides over, manages, leads the preparation of the pre what's called the president's daily brief, and the attendant intelligence support that's rendered to the National Security Council. If you had ultimate power and you could reorganize the intelligence apparatus tomorrow, uh, what would you do? I wouldn't reorganize uh, as I've. As the older I've gotten, I've got less and less enamored of reorganizations. That's kind of a common panacea. It's a proclivity of Americans. Uh, we don't like the way this is running, so let's reorganize. Well, I, uh, I did three agency-level reorganizations in my time. Two at DIA when I served there in the early 90s. This is the Defense, Intelligence, Direct, Agency. Defense Intelligence Agency. And one at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or NGA, which I s served as director for almost five years from 2001. Two I started two days after 9-11 2006. The one at NGA worked pretty well, mainly because I walked in the door with it and I had five, almost five years to execute it, implement it, which is really the hard part of reorganizations. The two I did at DIA, I had to do the second one to undo the ill effects of the first. So I'm, I've grown very cautious about uh, reorganization. This is a deorganization almost, or a de-reorganization. Yeah, so one of the options discussed in the run-up to the uh, uh, enactment of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act was, gee, why don't we just have a giant department yeah. of intelligence? Combine all these like a components. Cabinet well, it is cabinet level. The, the position of DNI is a cabinet level position, but it's not a cabinet department. Mm. But one proposal was, why not organize it that way? Well, a number of reasons for not doing that. One is it would pose a, I think, genuine threat to civil liberties and privacy uh, proponents and advocates in this country to have a juggernaut spy department. And secondly, if you took the... Uh, agencies out of Department of Defense, particularly NSA, National Security Agency, and NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, mm -hmm. the Department of Defense would simply regenerate those capabilities because they are so integral to war fighting. Reorganizations are hugely disruptive, mm -hmm. and uh, people don't appreciate the second, third order effects on unintended consequences. You know, it makes people on, on the top floor happy with their new wiring diagram, but that, that is the most superficial aspect of reorganizations. I think there is a, a case to be made for good leadership, which, uh, and people often want, want to compensate a redrawing of the wiring diagram to compensate for deficiencies in leadership. Speaking of deficiencies in leadership, I want to move on to uh, President Trump and uh, talk to you a little bit about the relationship he's had with the intelligence community. So you have been among the many who have been targeted by President Trump on, on Twitter. Mm -hmm on a few occasions this year. Um, how'd that make you feel? Well, specific case in point comes to mind is when uh, Acting Attorney General Sally Yates, uh, former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates and I appeared before the 
a subcommittee chaired by uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of the Senate Judiciary Committee on the 8th of May. And afterwards, uh, President Trump tweeted that uh, she and I had choked like dogs uh, during this hearing, which of course we didn't. I remember thinking, you know, if President Obama had said to me the day after a hearing, boy, you really choked on that hearing, I'd have been devastated. But with this president, it doesn't bother you've gotten, me. You've so it's almost a, a badge of honor. It is a, to, to be insulted by President Trump. Yeah. I'm almost hoping he'll insult me uh, at some point for this yeah. interview series, but we'll yeah, see what happens. Yeah, it was, a, I thought, a distinction to be uh, characterized as a political hack on of all days Veterans Day. <laughs> yeah, can you believe that? After having served 34 years in the military and done two tours in Southeast Asia, I, I just found that a bit I ironic. I mean, it's, it's like he's spending more time you know, feuding with uh, that, that basketball player's dad, LeVar Ball, more than he probably spends cumulatively just trying to learn about the Syria crisis. Well, in any event, uh, having been labeled uh, particularly uh, a Nazi, uh, which you alluded to, after uh, we briefed uh, President-elect Trump at the time on the 6th of January in Trump Tower, which undoubtedly was my first and I'm sure last ever sojourned to Trump Tower. And uh, of course, we had very high confidence in, the, in what we published publicly in the intelligence community assessment that rendered the judgments about uh, what Russia had last done October? to interfere yeah. in our election. No, this was the intelligence community assessment published that day. Oh, that day. Which was the unclassified version of a highly classified version that we briefed him on. I say we. It was John Brennan, then director of CIA, Jim Comey, then director of the FBI, Admiral Mike Rogers, still director of NSA, and myself. And I do think the president probably, and he said so, has uh, great faith in the intelligence community now that's being run by people he trusts. Obviously, the three Nazis have been banished, and so, uh, um, you know, I think uh, he, he's probably in a better place although he does seem to be selective about the intelligence that he believes in. Intelligence about Russia, not so much. Yeah. Uh, but intelligence on other subjects, Syria, Iran, he North will. Korea, yeah. he, he, uh, he embraces it. What are your worst fears in the next couple of years if, if, this tr if these trends continue? Well, I, I do worry about uh, the impact on, uh, on morale. Um, the recent... Uh, gratuitous and uh, inappropriate characterization of the FBI's in tatters, which implies that it is now worse than it was in the heyday of J. Edgar Hoover, which is absurd. And I do worry about, uh, particularly when, you know, the leadership, for lots of reasons, I guess, is mute in refuting or rebutting uh, those kind of uh, characterizations. So I do worry about the long-term impact on uh, on morale, and that in turn has impact on potential recruiting and retention. And that's important because the lifeblood of the intelligence community and its future is its people. I was also curious if we could move a little bit to current affairs and some stuff in the news right now. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Russia stuff uh, is still daily. Every week we were hearing about it. How do we, if, if Russia attempts to meddle again, um, I mean, Trump doesn't seem to believe. Yeah for some reason. What, what, how do, what do we do? What happens? Well, in all of the, I'll tell you that, i tell you that, but I think in all of this uh, current uh, preoccupation, uh, all-consuming 
uh, focus on investigations, plural, the three in the Congress plus uh, Special Counsel Mueller's investigation. The most important aspect of this is to get to the bottom of why the singular indifference to the threat posed by Russia. To me, that is even much more important than whether there's collusion or not. Uh, yes, that's an important issue. But to me, the greater one for the long-term safety and security of this country is to understand the singular indifference to the threat posed by Russia. Not only because of Russia's, uh, and this starts with Putin, because of his very strong animus to the United States and everything it stands for, but the military threat posed by Russia, which is indeed, unlike North Korea in my view, an ex poses an existential threat to this country. The Russians are embarked on a, uh, a serious strategic modernization, uh, uh, weapons uh, modernization program. And oddly, you don't hear too much about the fact that they are an abject violation of the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces uh, Agreement, a treaty voted by the Senate. Unlike uh, the, too, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran, in which the administration alleges that Iran is not in the complying in the spirit of that. I'm not sure what that means. Mm -hmm. So I find this uh, indifference to the threat posed by Russia, and they will continue. They are. If anything, they are mean, emboldened to do it even more. What can we do about it? Well, a number of things. One, we need to secure our political election apparatus, yeah. meaning the committees and certainly the voting apparatus at the state and local level. Yeah. Secondly is we need to educate the public. That's one of the, another reason why I felt I should, I, I should speak out about this. So people, to the extent that I can, convey to the public yeah. what the, the nature of the threat posed by the Russians who are bent on undermining our system. If anything, they were emboldened by what they did during our election I'm sure they exceeded beyond their wildest expectations. And thirdly, we need some kind of a counter-messaging program. I've been a long time a proponent for a USIA, a United States Information Agency, on steroids mm -hmm. uh, to contend with uh, the, a counter-messaging, aggressive counter-messaging program to what the Russians are doing here. What is undermining the United States mean? Uh, does that well, mean first, it, it, what it meant in the election was to sow discord and discontent and heighten and magnify the schisms and the polarization in this country. Mm -hmm. That's what they set out to do first. Mm -hmm. And then as things evolve, they change their objective, which of course, prompted first by a very strong personal animus for both Clintons, both mm -hmm. Secretary Clinton and former President Clinton, mm -hmm. by uh, uh, Putin, President Putin. And, and then, of course, when, uh, uh, then, Cam, then Mr. Trump secured the nomination, the Republican nomination, then they saw somebody, they saw in him someone they'd much rather deal with. And so, and now, of course, since, since the publication of our intelligence community assessment on the 6th of January, much more details come out about the scope and magnitude of what the Russians did. And yes, the Russians have messed in elections for a long time, uh, going back to the Soviet era. Uh, they messed in their own elections and they've messed in ours going back to the 60s. We have records of that. But never this aggressive and never this direct an attack and assault on our election system yeah. and our, uh, our values and standards. And they focused on promoting as much polarization 
as they possibly could. Yeah, the counterarguments here, there, there's some people who make the point that, that Russia is, this is not the Cold War, Russia is not as powerful as it once was. And secondly, that we do cooperate with them on issues of terrorism. We needed them for the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, climate change or the Arctic. Um, well, actually, I take issue with that. Really? Uh, there, there really hasn't been that sort of cooperation uh, with the Russians. Uh, they ostensibly uh, claim, purport to, to cooperate with us. But cooperation, the definition of cooperation with the Russians is give us everything you have and we're not going to give you anything. And I have personal experience with this mm -hmm. going back to my day as director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and my interactions with Russians, notably the GRU. So this is a one-way street with them. Yeah. The Russians are not our friends. They are bent on undermining us and our system. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there have been a few occasions where our interests converged and we cooperated. Uh, a specific case in point, which is kind of tactical, but it's illustrative, is the northern distribution system that the Russians allowed us to uh, use as a logistical pipeline into Afghanistan because it served their interest. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I'm hard-pressed to find where the Russians were genuinely interested mm -hmm. in working with us. Another case in point recently now, they are, they, they are also uh, now supporting the North Koreans, mm -hmm. where uh, trade and commerce between Russia and North Korea, which was always pretty insignificant, yeah. has actually blossomed. So, so a solution is what? Is it further sanctions? Is it uh, an expansion of NATO? Is it, what do you see as the, yeah, as all the way the above. Yeah. I do think, uh, yeah, this isn't the Cold War, but it looks a lot like it. Uh, <clears throat> that uh, we certainly need to vitalize our uh, engagement in and support for uh, NATO, which for me means more troop presence there. Uh, the Russians respect that, and the nations uh, desire it. Uh, one of my last trips as DNI was to the Baltics, and uh, I remember I met with the president of one of the Baltic nations who didn't care to particularly how big the U.S. force was. He, he'd take a squad of Army soldiers because of the presence that, that those soldiers, what that represented, mm -hmm. what it symbolized, as long as that American flag was planted, planted permanently in his country. So yes, that, that's, uh, that's very important. I think we must go on a, a, an information warfare counteroffensive mm -hmm. uh, against them, yeah. and we must buttress uh, our defenses in this country, both cyber and I'll say intellectually with, our, with the public. All right, enough with the softball questions. Uh, Derek, <coughs> could we get the uh, peanut butter cookies, please? Now, these are, uh, this is a snack break. This is your, your okay. favorite Thanks. snack is a... Wow, who made are, these? So there's a great local spot called Flower Bakery. They were baked fresh mm. this morning. Yeah, there are a few different locations, and it looks like there's salt on these, I think, something Very like good. that. Very um, good. So what, what is it about peanut butter cookies? What's your... I don't know. Um, I remember early... My early childhood, I, one of my grandmothers made peanut butter cookies. I guess I just developed an, do you, an affection uh, for them. How do you feel about PB and J's? Well, I like that. Yeah, more PB and J. I don't know if this is right, but do you grew up in the '40s and '50s, and in my mind, for some reason, I think of that as the golden era of PB and J's. <laughs> you know, I had them in the '90s, but it's sort of something I well. Well, I remember going to elementary school, and I had my tin lunch pail, and that was probably the most popular sandwich that my mother made for me. It was PB and Jack, peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. So, when you're director of national intelligence and you request a peanut butter cookie, 
I don't know if you ever did that. Did uh, do do people? I don't specifically remember <laughs> requesting peanut butter cookies. I used to get people would make them for me at Christmas time because so they knew I'd, that you liked it. I get get a lot of cookies then. I tried <laughs> not to take so many of them home. If you just kind of felt like having something as director of national intelligence, would people around you treat it like? something extremely serious, when all you really just wanted was a cookie, no. but because you were director of national intelligence? One of the things that uh, I always try to avoid in any of the senior positions I occupy was never take yourself too seriously. So, no. <laughs> now that you're out of government, how do you even, how do you get your news? I get it the same way everybody else gets it. Uh, I don't, you know, people ask, oh, gee, don't, don't you, aren't you having withdrawal symptoms, getting yeah. the shakes or something, because you, <laughs> you don't get a daily dose of uh, intelligence. And uh, no, I don't. <laughs> really? And the thing is, having been in and around the intelligence community for 53 or 54 years, I know enough about it. I can extrapolate what's, what's in the news, uh, what underlie reporting. And, right. And since I have, I think, some appreciation for both the capabilities and limitations of intelligence. Um, so it's fairly easy to imagine, yeah. uh, you know, what's what's really going on. But somebody who Things in the intelligence community don't change that quickly. Uh, we don't, you know, there's not revolutionary overnight uh, 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 change. Mm -hmm. The history that, at least I, as I lived it, has been evolutionary change, driven principally by technology, both adversary technology and our technology. Do you, if some, for somebody who hasn't ever spent time in the intelligence community, what is the disconnect between what the public consumes and what or what's known behind within government? Well, the intelligence community labors under a big handicap. Many of the other constituencies, most many of the constituencies in the government, do not have to operate in secrecy. So, what goes on in the Department of Agriculture or the Department of Commerce? Mm -hmm. The Department of Health and Human Services is not secret. It can be very transparent. There can be transparent, open hearings in the Congress that is a part of the oversight process for those these other cabinet departments. Intelligence, which is always sensitive about the protection of sources, methods, and tradecraft, cannot be that forthcoming, cannot be that transparent. That's not to say the intelligence community can't do a better job of that. That's Mm -hmm. One thing uh, I tried to push during my time as uh, DNI, particularly after the aftermath of the Snowden revelations, I think you know one the major takeaway for me from having lived through that experience <coughs> is the need for greater transparency. Mm -hmm. So, to the maximum extent possible, I, you know, educate the public as to what we're doing. That's why the 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 two oversight committees, the two dedicated intelligence oversight committees, one in the House, one in the Senate are so vital mm -hmm. because they have to represent, they have to be surrogates for the American public right. because they do have complete access to everything that the, the intelligence community does and, you know, are there is yeah. to be the vanguards or safeguards or guardians for ensuring mm -hmm. that everything we do is legal and moral and ethical. Although given the number of leaks right now that are being reported, it seems like the, the amount that the public knows is quite a bit relative to... That's right. Um, some of it is quite unfortunate. I mean, transparency is mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. I love it, but it's a two-edged sword because adversaries go to school on that same transparency. Mm -hmm. Well, 
We're all out of time. Thank you so much for joining. This is Snack Break. I'm Aru Mukherjee. Our guest today was General Jim Clapper, former director of national intelligence from 2010 to 2017. Jim, thank you again so much. Thank you. So why don't we get to the hard questions? (laughs) This episode of Snack Break was produced with the help of the Hauser Digital Media Team, Tara Cavanaugh and Harris Pasoltiner. Introduction music was composed by Evan Fennessy. To learn more about the show or watch episodes instead of listen to them, find us on YouTube or visit our website at snackbreakshow.com.